Then there were five by Elizabeth Enright. Chapter 13. The Best Birthday of All. Father did like Mark. Of course, I really always knew he would, Randy said. Way down deep, I knew it. I was just sort of ruffled on the surface. You couldn't help liking Mark, Rush said. He's good. I don't mean good acting. I mean good material all the way through, like a, a good potato or something. Potato, for heaven's sake, cried Mona. He's much more interesting than a potato. He's, oh, let's see, Randy, what sort of vegetable would you compare him to? And the discussion turned into one of the Melandy's favorite games, known as the comparison game. <clears throat> it went like this. Somebody left the room, or at any rate, went out of earshot. While he was gone, the rest of them decided upon a person known to them all, either by fame or by personal acquaintance. When the one who was it came back, he was allowed only to know whether this mysterious subject was male or female. Then he asked his first question. What color is he like? After he had been told, he asked the next person, What animal is he like? Or, What vegetable, bird, jewel, flower, or tree? Even what kind of weather? <clears throat> it was surprising how interesting it was, and how quickly one could guess the identity of the person in question. Cuffy's color, for instance, was unmistakably white. She was like a pigeon, and like a pussycat, and like a pearl, and like a big healthy cabbage rose. Orin, on the other hand, had been compared to a weasel, a chicken hawk, a parsnip, and the color of mustard yellow. Mark turned out to be good golden bantam corn, a setter dog, a meadowlark, a maple tree, and many other pleasant, reasonable things. They had left Mark by now, though, and were describing what seemed to be the most fascinating creature in the world. She was a female, and Randy and Rush—Oliver scorned this game—agreed that she was like a velvety purple pansy, like a dark sapphire, like a song by Brahms. Rush contributed that, of course. Mona was it, and she wondered secretly and hopefully if the person in question might not be herself. They had played it that way once or twice just as a joke on the unsuspecting questioner. "'What sort of vegetable is she like?' asked Mona, with a self-conscious toss of her silky hair. It was Randy's turn to answer. "'Oh, not like any vegetable in the world. Never, never like a vegetable.' Mona's hopes flagged. Once, long ago, they had used Mona for the subject, and they had agreed quite easily that she was like a cucumber. A cucumber! It was the sort of thing you could never forget. <clears throat> but Rush did not see eye to eye with Randy. "'She is like an onion,' he said dreamily. "'This person is like a very smooth, white, pearly onion.' "'Rush!' cried Randy. "'An onion! How can you ever, ever say such a terrible thing?' The battle was on, and of course the character turned out not to be Mona at all. It was Hedy Lamar. At this point Father's voice was heard calling them. "'Where are you all, anyway?' "'In the office, Father. Do you want us?' "'No, I'll come up. What are you doing?' "'Oh, just fighting,' Mona said, "'but it's not serious.' Father came up the stairs. He looked around the office. "'Where's Mark?' 
He went over to Oren's farm. Good. I hoped I'd catch you alone. Father declined to sit down. He stood up, with one elbow on the piano, as though he were about to make a speech. Have we done something bad? said Oliver. No, no. Or, at least, not as far as I know. It's about— "'Is it something about my birthday?' inquired Oliver. "'Would you like me to leave the room?' "'No, not this time. You can stay. As a matter of fact, it's about Mark.' "'Oh.' They waited. Father picked up a sheet of music and looked at it carefully without seeing it. He put it down again. "'What do you think of Mark?' "'Why, we think he's swell. We think he's just about the swellest guy we ever met,' Rush said. Mona and Randy agreed ardently, and Oliver said, "'Did you know he can walk on his hands?' "'I see. And what do you think should be done about him?' "'Why, father,' said Mona, "'that's what we were going to ask you.' "'I know what should be done about him,' announced Oliver. "'He should just go on living with us.' "'Oliver's right,' Randy said. "'That's what we all think. Couldn't we sort of adopt him?' "'Or really adopt him?' added Rush." "'If it's going to be too expensive, we can do without allowances,' Randy said. "'You can have practically all my radio money for his support,' offered Mona wealthily. "'I'll only keep enough for train money and ankle socks and things. "'And I'll get more piano pupils when school opens, and I can contribute too,' said Rush. "'Mark will be a help too,' said Oliver, who was a very practical boy. "'He knows a lot about farming.' "'And he can teach us all about nature,' added Randy enthusiastically. "'He knows everything about it. "'We'll learn all the right names of funguses.' "'Fungi,' corrected Father absently. "'Fungi, and insects, and plants. "'He'll teach us all about trees and birds and, uh, nature.' "'Won't that be nice?' pleaded Oliver, "'in such a desperate voice that Father couldn't help laughing. "'Nobody else laughed, though.' They sat there, silent and beseeching, their imploring eyes upon his face. "'Please, father,' entreated Randy. "'He'll have to go to an orphanage, or be adopted by strangers or something, if you don't,' threatened Rush. "'Well,' said father, at last, "'it's a serious step to take, you know. It's one thing to adopt a baby, and another thing to adopt a thirteen-year-old boy.' "'It's better,' said Mona positively. "'It's better, because he can talk and walk and all, "'and he doesn't have to be fed by hand.' "'And you have a good idea of how he's going to turn out, too,' agreed Rush. "'With a baby you'd never know. "'Why, it might grow up to be dishonest or stingy or mean to animals.' "'I'm not worried about the way Mark is going to turn out,' father admitted. "'It's all there in his face, honesty and courage and dependability. "'He knows how to work, too, and he's intelligent.' "'There, you see,' cried Rush, "'he'd even be a good influence for us.' "'Well—' Father sat down on the piano stool and reflectively touched a key. E-flat. He held his finger on it, and the sound died away slowly, quivering on the air as it diminished. When they could no longer hear it, Father took his finger off the key and turned around and faced them. "'But perhaps he won't want to be adopted.' "'Father!' shrieked Randy ecstatically, and flung herself upon him. 
Rush said father was swell, Mona said he was divine, and Oliver demonstrated his approval by jumping up and down rather heavily and saying, "'Oh, boy! Oh, boy! Oh, boy!' Father shook them all off, finally, and stood up. "'I think I'll take a walk over to the farm and have a talk with Mark.' "'Are you going to tell him now?' asked Randy. "'Are you going to invite him to be adopted?' "'Formally,' replied father. "'What about Cuffy? Maybe she won't like it,' said Mona. "'Cuffy will like it all right,' father said. "'She's been hinting at it for all she was worth for the last two weeks.' "'Oh, father, you're a wonderful man,' sighed Randy. "'At times I'm inclined to share your opinion,' agreed father, going down the stairs.' The Melody children were so happy that they became quiet. Mona picked up her radio script and tried to study it. Oliver opened a book. Rush sat down at the piano and began playing softly. Randy climbed the steps to the cupola. It was very neat up there. The bed was smoothly made, the few clothes were hung up, and the bump-toed shoes stood exactly side by side in front of a chair, like the feet of an uneasy visitor. "'Mark will be a neat brother to have,' thought Randy. "'She looked out the north window toward Carthage. "'In winter it will be too cold up here,' she thought. "'Then he can have Clarinda's room. "'It will like to have somebody living in it after all this time.' "'Suddenly Mona had a dreadful idea. "'She came right out with it, interrupting Russia's music, "'Randy's reverie, and Oliver's third laborious reading of Dr. Doolittle.' "'Maybe he won't want to be adopted,' she said. "'Maybe he'll be too proud or independent or something. "'Maybe he'll say no.' "'Don't be a goon,' Rush told her crossly. "'Of course he won't say no.' "'All the same, the mood was spoiled. "'He started to play again, "'but this time he galloped into the Brahms' Rhapsody, "'which was splendid music for restlessness or doubt. "'It seemed hours before Father and Mark returned.' They waited anxiously. Randy had gone up to the cupola again and was the first to see them. There they were, coming down the drive. Father's arm was around Mark's shoulders, and Mark was looking up at him, smiling and talking, nineteen to the dozen. "'What do you see up there, Sister Anne?' called Rush. "'It's okay!' shouted Randy joyfully. "'I see them coming now, and they look related as anything.' But it turned out that the business of taking Mark into their family was not quite so simple as it seemed at first. The Melendies, it appeared, could not just pick Mark up like a stray puppy and bring him home with no questions asked. Questions were asked about everything, and by many different people. First of all there was the bank. The Carthage Bank had a most tender interest in the mortgage attached to Oren's farm. The State Department of Social Welfare had an interest in the destiny of Mark Heron. So had the County Children's Aid Society. Also there were sundry inquiries from private persons, such as the DeLacy brothers, Cedric and Fitzroy, who wished to know the plans for the meeker dogs and a certain Hampshire stoat among the livestock. Others inquired about the cows. Herb Joyner, Mr. Addison, and several other farmers wanted to engage Mark as hired boy and there was even one elegantly worded document from a certain Waldemar Crown, offering all the comforts of his home to this luckless child, this lonely orphan, deprived by ruthless circumstance of each child's birthright, the security of a home, and the guidance of a mature mind. 
"'Oh, yeah?' said Rush, when Father read him the letter. "'It sounds like a cross between a sermon and a campaign speech,' Father said. "'Who is this gentleman?' "'He's just an ordinary everyday murderer and bank robber. "'At least that's what they say,' Rush explained airily. "'Oh, that's all, is it? "'Just one of the many drones one meets in the daily grind. "'And speaking of meeting, what's your connection with the fellow?' "'Maybe I'd better tell you.' "'Rush sat down and told Father the story of the still from beginning to end. "'Father looked almost cross. "'Listen, you young idiot. "'Do you know you might have been peppered full of buckshot? "'Maybe seriously hurt? "'Don't ever let me hear of such an escapade again, understand?' "'Don't worry, Father,' said Rush. "'There's not a chance. "'I'd never stick my neck out like that again.' The first person to come and call on them was a Mrs. Golding, a children's worker from the Department of Social Welfare. Father received her in his study, and during the course of their conversation was interrupted four times. Once by Oliver, appearing with a large sheep's head, which he had caught right in their own brook. "'I had quite a time getting him in,' said Oliver sociably, holding up the fish and allowing it to drip on the carpet." "'You see, the line got caught around a dead branch "'that was sticking out of the water there, "'so I just thought I'd better wade right in and untangle it. "'Well, I did that, and then—' "'Yes,' said Father, "'that's fine, Oliver, "'but perhaps you could tell me about it later.' "'Oh, I have plenty of time right now,' said Oliver cheerfully, "'and maybe this lady would like to hear about it.' "'Later, Oliver,' Father told him firmly, "'and Oliver finally took the hint and started for the door.' Just before he reached it, however, he turned, and addressed himself to Mrs. Golding. "'It's especially lucky that I caught this good big fish today, because today is my birthday, and I'm eight years old.' He waited for Mrs. Golding's congratulations, received them graciously, and departed with his fish. Father and Mrs. Golding continued their interview for some time, then suddenly past the partly open door drifted the unself-conscious figure of Mona, she had a strange, dreamy expression on her face, was wearing a wreath of nasturtiums, and carrying nasturtiums in her hands. She looked straight ahead of her like a sleepwalker, and as she walked she lifted one of the flowers and remarked in an eerie voice, "'There's rosemary. That's for remembrance. Pray you, love, remember. And there is pansies. That's for thoughts. There's fennel for you, and columbines.' "'There's rue for you, and here's some for me. "'We may call it Herb of Grace a-Sundays.' "'She floated out of earshot. "'Mrs. Golding was obviously startled. "'Indeed, she seemed alarmed. "'Father looked at her uncomfortably. "'My daughter, Mona,' he explained, "'she is really quite sound mentally, in spite of appearances. "'It's simply that she has every intention "'of becoming the American Sarah Bernhardt,' "'and lately we've had to put up with great doses of Ophelia. "'That's the mad scene you just saw,' he added, perhaps unnecessarily. <clears throat> "'Mrs. Golding was an understanding soul. "'She laughed till the tears came. "'The next interruption was caused by Randy, "'who came in to ask for twenty cents. "'I need another ball of yarn for Mark's sweater,' said she, "'and I'm already overdrawn on my allowance.' Father hastily fished a quarter out of his pocket and gave it to her. Randy held up the half-finished green sweater and showed it to him. 
"'I have such a terrible time with dropped stitches,' she said, "'turning confidingly to Mrs. Golding. "'Every night I find new ones and have to rip out yards of it. "'I feel like the wife of Ulysses ripping up the shirt every night, "'except that I haven't any suitors. "'Yet,' she added thoughtfully. "'Run along now, Randy,' said Father, "'who was beginning to be embarrassed by the friendly volubility of his children.' As Randy left, he turned again to Mrs. Golding. Now, as I was saying, in regard to the boy's education. At this moment, Isaac and John Doe burst into the study, ran rapidly around it twice with their tongues hanging out, and departed, leaving the rugs all up in lumps. Father sighed. Well, as I was saying. But Mrs. Golding closed her notebook and dropped it into her briefcase. "'Never mind,' she said. "'I know already everything I need to know about Mark's future home. "'But I would just like to have a look at the boy himself.' "'Of course,' said Father. "'There he goes now.' "'He pointed to the window. "'Mark was wobbling along the drive on a pair of stilts. "'Rush was close beside him on another pair. "'They had made them yesterday afternoon when it was raining. "'Pretty soon I'm going to tie the tops of these things tight to my waist "'and see if I can walk without holding on to them,' Mark told Rush." "'That's the way circus clowns do,' agreed Rush, suddenly collapsing on the gravel. "'I'll call Mark,' said Father, standing up. But Mrs. Golding said, "'No, after all, don't bother. He looks as if he were having a thoroughly good time, and,' she added, smiling, "'something tells me he's going to go on having it. He's an extremely lucky boy.' "'We're an extremely lucky family,' Father told her. "'Mark is a fine person.' They went out the front door where Oliver was <laughs> they went out the front door where Oliver was cleaning his fish on a copy of the Carthage Post Clarion. If you're considering a legal adoption, of course, you'll have to take it up with the surrogate's court, said Mrs. Golding. We'll let Mark decide that. Sorrowgate's court, Sorrowgate's court, sang Oliver mournfully to himself, fish scales flying about him. I'll never go back to the Sorrowgate's court. Never, oh, never, oh, never, oh, never. Back to the Sorrowgate's court. When Mrs. Golding's capable-looking, capable-looking little blue coupé, coop, when Mrs. Golding's capable-looking little blue coop had disappeared around the bend of the drive, Randy stuck her head out the upstairs window. "'What did she say, Father? Is he really ours now?' Father looked up and smiled. "'If he wants to be.' "'Gee whiz!' cried Randy, and an instant later she galloped down the stairs, shot out the door past Father and across the lawn to where the boys were stilt-walking. Her impulsive hug flung Mark from his stilts, but fortunately he was not seriously hurt. Mona and Oliver followed Randy at almost the same pace, and Rush leaped from his stilts and began clapping Mark on the back so hard that he made him cough. "'We all belong to the same family now! The same family!' shrieked Randy, dancing around them. Mark escaped from them, finally, and crossed the lawn to where Father was standing. "'Are you sure that you want me, Mr. Melendy?' "'We're sure, Mark. And you?' "'Me?' said Mark. "'Oh, boy!' He looked, Rush said afterward, as if he had swallowed a lighthouse. 
As all this coincided with Oliver's birthday, Mona made a suggestion. "'Let's have a double celebration, and let's have it a picnic party, instead of just a plain dining-room party,' she said. "'We'll take Oliver's presents with us, and the cake, too. We can eat the ice-cream when we get home.' There was some discussion as to where they should go, until Rush remembered the cave of which Mark had once spoken. "'Could we go there, with all the baskets and stuff?' "'Sure, we can ride part of the way, and then it's just a short walk through the woods.' It was a warm, golden September day. Cuffy and Mona and Father and Willie went in the carriage, with all the dishes and presents and food, and the birthday cake carefully shut up in a hat-box of Cuffy's that had the name La Petite Yvette written on the side of it in, it, in dashing green handwriting. Everybody else went on bicycles, even Mark, for Mona had lent him hers. He was rather a wobbly rider still, but getting better. Isaac and John Doe licketed along beside the bicycles, and Lorna Doone stepped gaily. Mark led them along an unfamiliar by-road, and after they had traversed it for a mile or two, he halted them, and said they must walk the rest of the way. They tied Lorna Doone to a tree with plenty of grass around it, ambushed the bicycles, and each with his load struck off into the woods. "'Thought you said it wasn't a long walk,' grumbled Rush, under a burden of baskets, blankets, and thermos-jug. "'Never seemed long before,' Mark said, sweating under a similar burden. "'Course I never took it with a load before.' Cuffy brought up the rear, carrying the birthday cake in its hat-box. She walked slowly, turning her head away from twigs and leaves with a look of loathing. Cuffy liked nature to be confined, mowed, tied back, and kept neat, as in a backyard. She had no use for the unmannerly tendrils, undergrowth, insects, and general inconveniences of untamed woods. The last straw was a short, steep, struggling climb up a sharp, densely wooded hill. They slid, clutched, panted, and groaned as they went up it. The paper cups were jolted out of Mona's basket and rolled all the way down again, to her disgust. Willie, grasping at vines, desperately said, "'Sure hope none of these is poison ivy,' and Cuffy, her neat grey hair caught up in self-locks, gasped, "'Sure hope it's worth it when we get there.' They reached the top of the hill, descended a little way, and found themselves standing upon a broad sandstone ledge. "'This is it,' Mark said. And after all, it was worth it. On this side the hill fell away abruptly, down and down into a ravine. There were birch-tops at their very feet, and the vermilion berry clusters of mountain ash. As far as the eye could see were folded wooded valleys, one opening into the next, endlessly and harmoniously. Above in the blue sky were mighty cumulus clouds, great weightless continents hanging motionless in the air. "'Jeepers!' said Randy, and Rush gave a long, low whistle. Cuffy sat down hard on a rock, fanned herself with a paper plate, and remarked that she was real fond of views. "'But where's the cave?' demanded Oliver, turning to Mark. "'Look,' Mark told him. "'Turn around.' Oliver turned. Close against the cliff grew a dense blue hedge of juniper. "'I don't see anything except just big bushes.' "'It's sort of prickly,' Mark said. "'But follow me.' He pushed right in among the junipers, and Oliver followed, saying, "'Ouch!' "'Mark! Where are you, Mark?' he called suddenly. 
but Mark had disappeared. He pushed on a little farther, the prickly branches snapped together behind him, and he found himself standing in a natural doorway in the rock. It was dark in there, a dark secret place. Mark, said Oliver doubtfully. Come on in, whispered Mark out of the shadows. Oliver stepped in. It was instantly much cooler and stiller, and there was a very dark, damp, thousand-year-old smell. The junipers made a blue screen that cut out much of the daylight. Let's startle em a little, whispered Mark. Yell your own name good and loud and see what happens. Oliver opened his mouth wide and yelled his name. Instantly echoes woke up all over the cave. Oliver, Oliver, ver, ver, ver. Now yell, help. Oliver bawled obediently. Help, 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 help. There was a crashing and an ouching outside. Russia's face stared in at them without seeing. You in here? Come on in and yell, invited Oliver. It's much better than the tunnel in Central Park. Mona and Randy appeared after that, and the cave rang with war whoops and strange greetings. Hello, woe, woe! You, woo, woo! Goo, noo, noon! Isaac and John Doe contributed to the eerie pandemonium by a great deal of amplified barking. Father and Willie finally pushed their way through the junipers to see what was going on, but Cuffy stayed where she was. She had no use for caves. Nasty damp places, she said. Why don't they just go down and holler in the cellar? Can't see the difference. Father and Willie had brought their flashlights. The turning circles of light revealed the rough rock walls and the sandy floor of the cave, which was littered with nutshells, cherry pits, bits of dry bone, and feathers. There were paw prints here and there, and some long sweeping marks that Mark said had been made by snakes. Isaac and John Doe stepped about eagerly, noses to the ground, and tails quivering with excitement. A great deal had gone on in this cave. Father said, How did you ever find the place, Mark? It's so concealed. One time I got caught up here in a storm, Mr. Melendy. It was a real bad storm. The sky just split wide open and let go with everything it had. Hail, too. And it was big hail, and it hurt just like stones would hurt. So I squeezed in under the juniper bushes, but gee, it was so scratchy I kept on pushing back and back, hoping maybe there'd be a kind of a little pocket between the bushes and the rocks. First thing I knew, I'd pushed myself right into the cave. Boy, was I ever surprised. Sure is a lot of bats hanging up there, observed Willie, whose flashlight was trained upon the ceiling. They all looked up. What had at first glance appeared to be a thick growth of moss or fungus now proved to be a community of bats. Here and there among them were little motions, the shifting of a claw, the stretching of a wing, the turning of a small eared head. And now that everyone was silent, little sounds could be heard as well, the faintest rustle, and a tiny nickering. How revolting! shrieked Mona suddenly, and plunged for the door. Randy, shrieking too, close at her heels. Girls, remarked Rush with patient boredom. They probably look just as bad to the bats. Say, Mark, have you ever found anything here, like Indian relics or human bones or counterfeit money or anything like that? Or maybe old weapons or a secret map or something? In books, people always discover stuff like that in caves. Yes, that's what I always thought too, but all I ever found was an old cowbell. 
"'Maybe you didn't look hard enough,' Rush persisted. "'A place like this is too good a hideout for somebody not to use. "'Maybe we ought to dig up some of the sand. "'No harm in trying. "'Why, if I were a robber, I'd be sure to bury stolen goods in a cave like this.' "'Well, you kids search if you want to,' said Father. "'You can have my flashlight, but not too long. "'I don't want the battery worn out.' He and Willie pushed through the juniper screen again. Oliver went with them. He did not care much for bats himself. Mark and Rush searched the cave diligently. Then they went to work with sticks, scraping away at the sandy floor. "'I tell you what,' cried Rush, "'we ought to use this for a hideout ourselves. "'We could keep things here, you know. "'We could keep cans of food and crackers in a tin box "'and bottles of ginger ale and stuff. "'Sometimes you and I could camp out and stay here all night.' "'Not a bad idea,' agreed Mark excitedly. "'We'll make it into a real camp. "'We can gather lots of dead wood and stack it in here. "'Then we'll always have firewood. "'And we can bring some books and comics "'in case we feel like reading. "'Yes, and some candles, and a knife to protect ourselves with.' The time flew, and great plans were laid. Sticks scraped fruitlessly in the sand, and overhead the bats stirred. <coughs> Sticks scraped fruitlessly in the sand, and overhead the bats stirred and twittered restlessly in the unaccustomed yellow light. Come and get it! shouted Randy in the midst of it. Out of doors a fire had been lighted on the ledge. The plates and cups were all set out, and Randy and Mona and Father were roasting hot dogs over the flames. The party was a great success. The birthday candles dipped in the air, and Oliver liked all his presents. He was particularly fond of the creel Father had given him, the large supply of peanut butter fudge contributed by Mr. Titus, and the set of willow whistles, all different sizes, made by Mark and the Melanie's old friend, Mrs. Oliphant, had sent him a big, gorgeously illustrated book on moths. Oliver, as usual on such occasions, grew pale and could not eat, but happiness was nourishment enough. They stayed until the sun went down, and then a spooky thing happened. The bats began coming out of the cave. By dozens, in a steady stream, <coughs> They dodged out between the juniper twigs, fluttered and swooped above the fire, circled and zigzagged in the twilight, with tiny sharp squeaks. There seemed to be hundreds of them, and they flew close, close about the people on the ledge. They could feel the air fanned against their faces. <coughs> Mona threw herself flat on the ground and covered her head with her arms. Randy flung herself against father and buried her face in his coat. Oliver flung himself against Cuffy, and Cuffy grabbed the first thing she saw, which happened to be a picnic basket, and put it on her head, with the handle under her chin. "'They never really do get into people's hair, Cuffy,' father said. "'It's just a superstition.' But Cuffy refused to remove the basket. She sat there proudly with it on her head, one arm around Oliver, like some strange African tribeswoman or priestess. Only after every bat had disappeared would she take it off. They had quite a time going down the hill in the dark. The lurching light of the flashlights made everything appear larger than before, and there was a great deal of slipping and stumbling. The tin cups and forks clattered in the picnic baskets, and Oliver got the hiccups. Everyone was relieved when they at last reached the road where Lorna Doone and the bicycles were waiting patiently. But there was still more to Oliver's birthday— 
When they came home, they ate the ice cream. Then he said good night. Shortly afterward, he came flying down the stairs in his underwear. Going someplace? inquired Rush. My Cecropia! panted Oliver. It's my Cecropia! It's hatched! Come and see! Come and see! His what? said Cuffy as they went up the stairs. His moth, Rush said. The one that used to be that big green job with all the buttons when it was a caterpillar. He must be a freak. He's six months too early. They came into Oliver's room, all of them, and there, on the curtain, was the beautiful thing. It had wide, velvety wings with red borders and broad, fringed antennae. In the middle of each wing was a mark like a Persian crescent. Oliver stood gazing at it, gratified as though he had created it with his own hands. "'It's wonderful,' he sighed. "'It's almost as wonderful as my Luna.' "'What Luna?' said Rush." "'Oh, just a Luna I saw. Father, isn't he beautiful?' "'Perfectly beautiful, Oliver.' "'Cuffy, isn't he beautiful?' "'Real pretty,' Cuffy had to admit. "'My lands, it's a good thing he isn't the kind that eats clothes, though, being the size he is.' "'Are you going to let him go?' asked Mona. "'Yes, right now. I want him to have a good time before the nights get too cold.' Oliver caught him in a little net and started out of the room. "'Oliver!' cried Cuffy. "'Not in your underwear!' But Oliver kept right on going, the other children behind him. They went out onto the dusky lawn. Oliver opened the net. The great soft creature crawled out onto his finger, hesitated a moment, and then fluttered away, vanished in the darkness. Mark, watching, thought, "'I was like that.' all folded up tight in a cocoon, dark and uncomfortable, and now I'm out of it, like him, now I'm free. Naturally, he didn't voice this sentiment. It would have sounded corny. It would have sounded so corny, in fact, that he got hot thinking about it, gave a great war-whoop to get his mind off the subject, and chased Rush into the house. When Oliver and Mona had gone in, too, Randy took a short walk. She had the world to herself. It was very dark. Everything frightened her a little, the moving shadows, the melancholy sighing of the spruce trees. A falling leaf touched her cheek softly, and she jumped. She came upon the sunflowers sooner than she expected, and they rustled faintly, like tall people breathing. They frightened her, too. She turned and walked back toward the brook. The earth seemed to quiver and sing and vibrate with endless insect sounds. The scent of ladies' tobacco drifted down from the pasture-land near Carthage. At the far end of the lawn, Randy turned and looked at the four-story mistake. The windows were all open, and most of them were lighted. The house was like a big, airy lantern. A sound of talking came from it, and a sound of running bath-water. Up in the office, Rush was practicing his Schumann, and out in his rooms above the stable, Willie was tootling on his recorder. Randy listened to all these familiar noises, and in addition she heard the hollow voice of Mona's radio, a single querulous bark from Isaac, and the woodpecker tapping of Father's typewriter. The house hummed with life. She could see things happening in it, too. There was Cuffy walking to and fro past Oliver's window putting away his clothes, probably, and picking out clean ones for tomorrow. 
Up in the office, Rush was playing the piano, and Mark was sitting nearby, listening, and scratching his back with a pencil. Down in the study window, Randy saw Father's beloved head, in profile, studiously bent above his typewriter, the reading glasses far down on his nose. Randy played a game with herself that she had sometimes played before. She played that she was a stranger, a wanderer in a foreign land, who had come upon this house unexpectedly after a long and lonely journey through a forest. She stood in the shadows and looked at the way the light from the windows lay in long rectangles on the grass. She listened to the many noises and watched Cuffy moving about in her comfortable way, the two boys at the piano, and Father at his desk. Randy sighed, a lonely pilgrim sigh. The people in that house are happy people, she thought, and felt a stab of longing. That was the thing about this game. It seemed so real, and the sense of relief was so marvelous a moment later when she told herself, That's your house, Dopey. That's your family, and you're part of it. She ran quickly across the grass and jerked the front door open so hard that all the little moths were jarred off the screen. She ran upstairs to Oliver's room. He was sitting up in bed in blue striped pajamas, surveying his birthday presents for the last time till tomorrow. That is Oliver Melendy, my brother, thought Randy, staring at him with her stranger's eyes. He looks like a nice boy. Did you enjoy your birthday, Oliver? she asked him. Yes, I did, he replied. It was the best birthday of my whole life, and I got almost everything I wanted except a helicopter, and I didn't really think I'd get that. And I caught that good big sheep's head, and my, my cecropia hatched out, and I got a new brother that isn't a baby. Yes, Oliver said slowly, as though carefully weighing the value of each of his birthday events. I guess that was really the best thing that happened to me today, getting Mark for a new brother. End of chapter 13, read by Kara Schallenberg on Thursday, April 18th, 2013, in San Diego, California.